I'd love for you now to take your Bibles and join with me as we're turning once again in this series to Galatians chapter 1, where I'm going to be picking up today in verse 11, picking up where we left off last week and carrying it on through verse 24 of this first chapter of Galatians. As you're turning there, I encourage you to invite friends to come out, be part of this discussion tonight. It's a rare thing to be able to get wisdom from such outstanding physicians as we will have tonight in the coming weeks and other medical personnel to be able to think things through and to be well prepared to plan out matters pertaining to critical health care issues. So invite friends who may be curious about this subject and we'll try to handle it in a way that's practical and relevant and God-honoring. Well, we're picking it up now in verse 11 of the first chapter, the book of Galatians, continue on talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here now, you and I find these words. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles. Only James, the Lord's brother, I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia, and I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God, because of me. So we're going to be looking at these verses and asking ourselves now, how do I make sense of this? How does this relate to my life personally? Let's look to our Lord now in prayer. And our fathers, we're coming before you. We're coming before you as people who realize that you are the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. Which means you have infinite, eternal, unchangeable wisdom. Which we so desperately need. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable love. That could only come from a God like you. We praise you, we thank you for this fact. And we're asking, Lord, that 
having come into this world as sinners, we can draw upon the wonderful plan in eternity past that this infinite, eternal, unchangeable God would send His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die for our sins. And because you are all powerful, you are even powerful over death and raised Him three days later certifying the work of Jesus Christ and assuring us that there's more to life than the grave. And so, Father, what we want to do now is to plunge into the depths and embrace the breadth of what it is that's written in these verses and allow for you to speak to our point of need. So, Father, you know these needs. You know the difficulties of these past days for some of us. You see tears on pillows at night that nobody else sees. Aches and hearts that can only be filled by you and you alone. You're there in the joys and you are ministering in the sorrows. You are God and you are all present. We praise you. So Father, again now, Our prayer is that you warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. We've come here again now to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Adrian Rogers, gifted pastor, He's gone home to be with the Lord, tells in one of his messages of a, of a man who decided that he was going to go into the northern country to be able to catch that prize that has been on his mind and on his heart through the years. At the particular time, the rod bent forward and began to sway back and forth. Fisherman's dream. And the fellow caught the famed great northern pike. As Rogers puts it then, proud of his catch, this fellow decided to take this trophy fish and put it in a large aquarium that he had acquired and to display it for his own personal enjoyment. So he fed minnows to the pike, gobbled each one up, and then... As an experiment, this man decided to place a glass minnow in the tank, which looked amazingly like the minnows that had been fed to the pike previously. Pike raced towards that glass minnow, mouth wide open, chopped down on it, and immediately decided this was not edible and changed his mind. Bumped. It with his nose, grazed it with his body, toyed with this, with this minnow, but again with no success. Well, fearing it made a mistake, the pike chomped down one more time, but still not to be eaten. As Rogers puts it, from that point forward, this. Pike was skeptical of minnows. 
For he had tasted the real thing and was now an expert on the counterfeit. In verses 1 through 5 of this first chapter, Paul has exposed the Galatian churches to the real thing, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But having done so, as we noted last week in verse 6 through 10, he then develops the distinctives of what to look for in the counterfeit gospel, a false gospel. So now, then, believers are equipped to be able to distinguish between that real minnow of a gospel, so to speak, and that glass substitute that's floating out there in society. But there are some critics out there of the Apostle Paul who seem to find wherever it was that he administered and then appear on the scene attempting to refute what he had communicated regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would say that you have to add human works to Christ's work, they would say. And in particular, one of the things that they would do is try to argue that this gospel that Paul was presenting did not come from God, but rather was a tradition of humanity. Now when you and I look at all the various religions in this world, there is only one of which the grave is empty. For all others... The founders occupy their graves. So now what Paul is going to want to do is to authenticate the gospel that he has been presenting to these churches in the region of Galatia. And so he will do so now autobiographically, allowing for them to enter into his experience on that road to Damascus where his life would be forever changed as God broke in. Has God interrupted your life? Has he brought you to a crisis moment where all of a sudden life has so been interrupted that you have to pause and ask, what is it that God is saying? And what is it that God is now doing? And if you have grappled or are grappling with those questions this morning, I want you to join with me as we're looking now at these verses 11 through 24, distinguishing the true from the false. And now what we're going to have to do is to look at three significant factors of the gospel that are developed here in these verses. And the first flows out of verse 11 and 12, and we're going to simply describe these verses as pertaining to the origination of the message of this gospel. In other words, you're asking yourself the question, what's the source of this gospel? What is the beginning of this gospel? Who created this gospel? Where do I look? So now, Paul finds himself in a spiritual tussle with his critics who are saying, Paul is not communicating a gospel that we want you to embrace He is saying that it's Christ's work and Christ's work alone. The Judaizers are saying Christ's work plus your work. Now the question is, who's right? And where did that gospel come from anyways? You know what he does? 
What Paul does now is he starts with the negative before he proceeds to the positive. And he develops three significant negatives in verse 11 at the beginning of verse 12 so that we have formalized an understanding of where this gospel that he is speaking of did not come from. Notice them with me. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins. This gospel I preached is, number one, not something that man made up. Camp on that for just a minute. What he is saying then is that this gospel is not of human invention. It's not enough to be religious. The world is filled with religion. The critical question is, who is the source of that religion? Or what is the source of that religion? And is there enough evidence to back up the source? Now what Paul is going to eventually do is to tell us about that risen Savior on the road to Damascus that confronted with him with the fact of who the true source is. But what he's now doing is he's refuting those who are attempting to say Paul's source is something or someone other than God. And he does so by developing some negatives. And so he's saying, look over the course of the religious landscape globally. And what you will find is a lot of invented religion. But what all those invented religions share in common is that their founders still occupy their graves. That's how you can tell an invented religion. Its founder still occupies its grave. We've got to be able to distinguish, then, the real minnow from the glass substitute. He offers the true gospel in verses 1 through 5. He then distinguishes it from false gospel in verses 6 through 10. And now he says to his critics, I want you to understand with regards to my source, the origins of this gospel. It's not invented. First negative, not something that man made up. A second negative, I did not receive it from any man. It's no hand-me-down. It's no second-hand, third-hand that I got from, from a thrift store. This is something that comes from the primary source himself. It didn't come from humanity, was not passed down through humanity. And furthermore, he says, thirdly in his negatives, at the beginning of verse 12, nor was I taught it. In other words, he's saying, I didn't figure this out in some mathematical formula in my classroom in Jerusalem nor in Tarsus, nor in Antioch. So now after he's delivered these three negatives, he's saying, those are not my sources. You and I are leaning forward and we're saying to ourselves, okay, we've got to be able to distinguish true from false. This is of critical, eternal value. If all the false religions, invented religions of this world, have one thing in common, their inventor is still occupying their graves. What distinguishes Christianity as the authentic gospel 
in comparison to all others. Look at what Paul now delivers for you and for me. He lays out the goods and he says, at the end of verse 12, I received it. He doesn't say, I achieved it with human works. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Which means then that Jesus Christ had to be raised from the dead in order for the Apostle Paul to receive this revelation because prior to, prior to Christ's resurrection, Paul was obviously opposed to, Jew, to, to the whole concept of this gospel. Subsequent now to this resurrection, he's going to have to grasp and grapple with the real thing. Are you doing that? Billy Graham tells the story. I was invited to have coffee one morning with Conrad Adenauer. Some of us might remember that name. Before he retired as the Chancellor of Germany. When I walked in, I expected to meet a tall, stiff, formal man who might even be embarrassed if I brought up the subject of Christianity. But after the greeting, the Chancellor suddenly turned to me and said, Mr. Graham, what is the most important thing in the world? Before I could answer, he answered his own question. He said, if Jesus Christ is alive, then there is hope for the world. If Jesus Christ is in the grave, then I do not see the slightest glimmer of hope on the horizon. And then he amazed me, Dr. Graham goes on to say, by stating that he believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, listen to this, one of the best attested facts in history, and ended with these words, when I leave office, I intend to spend the rest of my life examining the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the Gospel is an intensely intelligent presentation of God's grace. It makes sense. It's what distinguishes Christianity from everything else in this world. And so now you and I are challenged then, if we love Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, to be able to effectively draw people's attention to origin, source. Draw out attention to the fact Muhammad is still in his grave. Draw out attention to the fact that all the other founders of religions are still occupying their graves, but there is a vacancy sign hanging over that one particular grave in the region of Palestine because we have a resurrected Savior who confronted what was then known as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul's life would never be the same again. And the same holds true for you. And the same holds true for me. That if we get serious, real serious, about this whole matter of ultimate issues of life, 
then we weigh upon our minds and upon our hearts the evidence that demands the verdict regarding the claims of Jesus and what was achieved on that cross via the grace of God and thus the resurrection due to the hand of the Father and say, I have to then embrace this truth. So you start with the origination of the message. And it comes down to then in the confusing and competing religions of this world and the various philosophies of this world, who's got the empty grave? Let's start there. Because that person is then still alive and has something to say that is relevant today. It's not past tense stuff. Once you and I have grappled with this, the origination of this message, found in verse 11 and verse 12, we're ready for the second factor, found in verse 13 through 17, the transformation of the person. The transformation of the person. Because once we embrace the fact that this is of God and not of humanity, it means then, and it challenges us, change is on the horizon in your life and mine. Are you ready? So now what God did is that He put Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And then God is going to break in and totally disrupt His life. Has God ever broken in and totally disrupted your life? And have you found that there is love in the disruption? Now here's what's fascinating in these verses. It's really interesting what he does. In verses 13 and 14, now he surveys the landscape of his life in the past and talks to us about his experience before conversion. Before salvation. Look carefully at the way he describes his experience. Verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Not the sort of man that would be interested in gaining perspective on Christianity from the church, is he? Not likely, then, that he's going to be seeking answers to life's ultimate questions from the very people he's persecuting, is it? So he's setting up a scenario here that takes you back to the origins. Thus, you've got to accept the fact that this was a Damascus Road experience with the risen Savior. So he takes you to his prior experiences. I was persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. Circle that word destroy. In the Greek language, the word destroy, New Testament is written in Greek, carries with it the idea of a military operation in which a commando force in the Roman Empire completely destroys a city and its inhabitants. Now what Paul is saying here is that's the sort of guy I was. I was not out to merely tease. I was out to completely destroy Christianity. And if that's not enough, he goes on to say in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the truth of God 
No. How does it read? For the traditions of my fathers. Now, what we've got to bear in mind is that the gospel is not tested by time. The gospel is tested by truth. All that time does is it allows for traditions to develop, but does not guarantee us that truth prevails. The gospel is based not upon human traditions, but upon God's truth. And I thought about that when I came across this. Next time you get a a bottle of Bayer aspirin. For nearly 100 years, the Bayer Corporation placed this white cotton clump in each bottle. You know what I'm talking about. Until they discovered that the aspirin would hold up fine without the extra cushion. But people began to write in and complain about missing, missing the cotton clump. And so Chris Allen, Bayer's vice president, responded, quote, We concluded there really wasn't any reason to keep the cotton except tradition. Besides, it's hard to get out. You ever notice how hard it is to get tradition out? Particularly when tradition is in conflict with truth? You know, over the course of time, a religion can look like truth when really what it is is tradition. So you've got to go back to the source and ask yourself, what is and who is the origination of this? And the telltale is, is the grave occupied? Or is the grave empty? Is that leader, that originator, teaching past tense or present tense, future tense? Now, because Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of all, what we see now is that the origination of the message leads us then to the transformation of the person and look at what happens next. Verse 15. But when God doesn't say but when I says but when God. He is now moving you from before conversion to the time of conversion. Before salvation to the time of salvation. He refuses to use the word I. He now speaks of the great word God. But when God who set me apart from birth, his sovereign grace, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Notice then that what Paul is saying here is that God did this by grace. If that particular religion's grave is occupied by its founder, then that religion's plan of salvation is one of works. But for Christianity and this particular exclusive gospel, because that grave is empty, 
the salvation is not based upon our works. It's based upon God's grace giving us then what we don't deserve. So Gary Highlander came into this world as a sinful person. Born. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. But God in His grace broke in. And as a result of God's grace, Highlander put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, as I pray you have as well. It was a hot afternoon in Texas. I think all afternoons in Texas are hot. It was May of 19. 51. There's a small class of graduating students sitting around in a lecture hall as the president of that school, Louis Chafer, was delivering his lecture from a wheelchair. Dallas Theological Seminary. The students were listening intently because this was Dr. Chafer's final lecture. He was nearing death. As he reaches his conclusion, he begins to wipe the perspiration from his face. He's completing his favorite topic, the grace of God. When as one student informs us, Dr. Chaffer closed his eyes as tears came. And his last words to that graduating class were classic. Quote, gentlemen, for half my life I have been teaching the grace of God, but I am just beginning to understand it. And it is magnificent. It is magnificent. Let me share a few thoughts about grace. We're not saved by our works. That means that the grave is occupied. We are only saved by God's grace. That grave is vacant. But God's grace is not infinite. Whenever that idea appears in a hymn or a praise song, I seal my lips. Let me explain why. The reason why God's grace is not infinite is because God is infinite, and grace is not God. God is gracious. And we experience grace of an infinite God But grace is not infinite, otherwise I've confused grace with God. Grace comes from God. But only God is infinite. For you see, God graciously warns you and me over and over to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior because someday His justice will be experienced. And justice and grace are two sides of that same coin of the cross of Jesus Christ. Where Christ received our justice 
so that we could experience God's grace. You see? So it's an error. It's an error to view grace as God. Paul doesn't. He's got everything in proper perspective. You and I are saved only by grace to faith in the risen one, Jesus Christ, His work, not ours. And so now, he takes us from before conversion to his experience at conversion where he's saying it's all of grace and it's all about Jesus to now after conversion, a before, a during, and after. It's the three parts scenario of your life, Lord willing. Where in verse 17 he says, Nor did I go up to apostles before I... Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was... Listen to this now. It's powerful. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. In other words, what he is now informing you and me is that once he was saved, he chose not to become some kind of spiritual celebrity, but rather simply... God's servant. And there is a danger of making celebrities out of servants by putting them up front too soon. I thought about that when I came across this from the two-volume work on Hudson Taylor, great missionary to China. Volume 1, Hudson Taylor in early years. Volume 2, Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. And what amazes is how much attention is given to the early years, the formative years, the quiet years of his life. The authors were very much aware and wrote this. As we studied and pondered the materials at our disposal, it impressed upon us with growing force that the experience in the career of Mr. Taylor was furnished a notable illustration of the truth that when God raises a person for special service, he first works in that person the principles which later on are, through his labor and influence, to be the means of widespread blessing to the church and to the world. Let's cut to the chase. What do they mean? We have too many celebrities and not enough servants. Nine-day wonders of spirituality that flash across the scene and then disappear. Listen. God, immediately after taking this remarkable man, Saul of Tarsus, who's transformed to the Apostle Paul, removes him from the scene and puts him in a quiet place to grow in grace. He develops the private man before he exposes the world to the public man. For you see, before God works through a person, he works in a person. Because the work that we do is the outgrowth of the life that we live. Listen, Jesus spent 30 years preparing for three years of ministry. The danger in our fast approach society is we wait for the person to become three years old and give them 30 years of ministry. Listen, God prepares us for what he is preparing for us. 
there's a danger of becoming a public person too soon. Where the private person is less than what the public person appears to be. Nurture the private realm so that you're better prepared then to address the issues in the public realm. And this is what God does now. What he does now with Paul. Don't put somebody on a platform too soon. Once we have embraced this, we realize we move now from the origination of the message through the transformation of the person to now our third significant factor, the glorification of the Lord. Only God gets the glory. Let me show you how this works. After three years... Then I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. And now they must be saying to themselves, transformation. Like us, we embrace the origination of this message because we had firsthand encounter with the risen Savior. So has Paul. But now we can embrace Paul as a brother in Christ because of the transformation of the person. You see, false religion produces a lot of motion. True Christianity produces not motion, but transformation. And there's a difference. It's not a lot of religious activity. It is a bona fide ministry. And so out of this then, there are all these believers in Jerusalem and they're processing the info. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And so what do you do with this kind of information that's coming in various settings? The people in Judea are hearing it. The people of Tarsus are experiencing it. The people of Jerusalem are embracing this. Verse 24, they praised God because of me. It doesn't say they praised me because of God. Did you note that? They praised God because of me. Because they have embraced first things. They've started with origination, Move, therefore, through transformation. Embrace, therefore, the glorification, not of the individual, because we're not out to create spiritual celebrities, but rather bona fide servants of the living God. Because the second member of the Trinity no longer occupies that grave. Which takes us back to those first ten verses of Galatians 1. What he's basically saying is, Try to distinguish between a real minnow and the glass alternative. The real gospel is found in verses 1 through 5. It distinguishes from the false gospels which are explained in verse 6 through 10. And once the distinction is made, bear in mind you're able to make that distinction because you got it from the original source. 
And the origination leads to transformation, which results in glorification, not of us, but of God. Do you know him as your Savior? The grave's empty, you know. Let's stand together. Praising you, thanking you, and giving you the complete honor and glory. This wonderful, incredible congregation, special people in each of these three services. We come here, Father, because it's not about us. It's about you and you alone. We dig deep into your word. We focus attention upon your Son. And we praise the triune God for who you are and what you have done. So if there's anyone here who has come spiritually curious, I pray now that they will examine the evidence, distinguish the true from the false, and put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, the risen one. The message has been authenticated through his resurrection. The gospel comes from you and you alone. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.